Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, talking about programming. Not the computer kind, we're talking about programmable actions. We're talking to Bill Lassick. Bill, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Gabe. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man, I'm excited to talk about this. This is something that one of your designs does in, a, in some really interesting ways with the programmable actions and, and that kind of thing. And so I'm, I'm excited to get your ideas on how to make this work and then also talk about other examples. There's a lot of games out there, a lot of like really great games that use this as its as their core mechanics. And, and so I'm excited to kind of figure out like what does this look like? How do you do this effectively? What are the design challenges? But before we get into all that, who are you? What's your bio? How'd you get into game design? That kind of thing. All right, cool. So uh, my name is Bill Lassick. Um, I am the owner and also sole employee of Wandering Hearth Games. Uh, originally, uh, was designed as a, a publishing uh, company. However, I have a awesome, amazing 17-month-old daughter, Liliana, and that requires a lot of time and uh, attention. So does trying to run a publishing house. So I decided it's good for my own sanity and uh, my family. Uh, we are going to do selling uh, designs for a couple of years. So right now, I design games. Um, pitch them to publishers and hopefully find publishers that uh, like what I did and want to give me money for them. So that's uh, that's how Wandering Hearth is uh, uh, about. And how did I get into this world? Um, it's interesting. Uh, you know, like everybody else, uh, you know, I did gaming uh, with the family. Uh, you know, Monopoly, uh, Scrabble, Stratego, actually. I still play Stratego. It's actually fun. Um, but, uh, you know, that was when I was a kid. Uh, then as I got older into high school and stuff, did uh, Magic the Gathering, got into that pretty heavy until my wallet didn't support it anymore and uh, took a, <laughs> took a break from that and really just kind of did the adulting thing for a while and stuck with video games for the longest time. Completely ignorant of what amazing things were happening in the board game industry and modern board gaming as a whole. And uh, then one night... Um, uh, some of our good friends, uh, Nick uh, Grader of Gate Greeter Games and his fiance Gina, uh, came over and like, hey, let's do a board game night. I'm like, okay, sure. What, what do you got? Because I had no idea of any games these days. And he, uh, he brought this game over uh, and looked at the box. It was a small box. It was like 16-bit um, graphics and a monster on the cover. It was called Boss Monster. I'm like, what is this? And he goes, it's Boss Monster. I go, I can see that, but what is this? This is interesting. And... Um, uh, for those that don't know what the game is, it's you know it's a it's a dungeon crawler with a twist where you're not being this hero trying to stomp through this old 16-bit retro dungeon. You're the monster, and you're trying to lure um, woefully ignorant heroes to your dungeon so you can uh, kill them for fun and profit and winning the game. And it was just such a cool, different take on uh, the old trope of uh, heroes hitting a dungeon that I was hooked. I mean, we we played one game like let's play it again. But same, like right after it, and then we played, let's do it one more time because I wanted to win at least once that night. And ever since then, I was uh, hooked on board games. Um, so uh, got into a lot of different ones, started playing uh, a whole bunch, uh, the collection group for about a year. And then I kept going back to Boss Monster. I'm like, you know what? Um, this was a cool different take on a, a retro dungeon crawler, but I want to play one. I wanted to 
kind of stomped through a, a game of Zelda or Dragon Warrior. And so I'm like, okay, what game does that? And I was looking, there was a bunch of dungeon crawlers, but none that really did the 16-bit feel. I mean, Super Dungeon Explorer came close, but didn't exactly do it. So I figured, hey, let, let me design my own. So I came with a game called Cartridia, which is exactly that. It's a retro uh, um, romping, stomping around through the dungeon as you grind your way to fun, profit, and uh, hopefully winning the game. Um, and, you know, I just did it for fun, and people really started to like it. And I thought, okay, how do I how do I actually make this thing? And I had no idea where to start because in our board game sandbox, there's so many different things you can do. Sometimes you have no idea where to even start. Um, so I went back to what started it all, the box of Boss Monster. I looked at the back of the box. It was made by a company called Brotherwise Games. And uh, I sent them an email and said, hey, guys, I'm a kid from New Jersey. You don't know who I am, but I love your game. I'd also like to make games. I think that would be neat. Um, and I just kicked this email out asking uh, them if they would spend some of their time helping me figure out where to go within the industry. And, you know, I didn't really think they'd even respond. And then I get an email right back from Chris O'Neill. And he's like, hey, are you free at three? Um, and I'm like, oh, my God, this guy's a publisher. He's in California. He's got a business and a successful Kickstarter. I don't care what I was doing that day. I was absolutely available at 3 o'clock. Um, so uh, he ended up chatting with me for 30, 45 minutes, uh, giving me a lot of great advice. And uh, ever since then, I've been uh, becoming more and more a part of the community, giving back whenever I can. And uh, that's basically the story. Yeah, awesome. And then you've got uh, a game published with Smirk and Laughter Games called Koi, and I'm excited to talk to you about in a minute. Uh, but what uh, do you have any other designs that have been signed? Um, none it's signed. I do have a, a few that are under review with publishers. So hopefully next time we talk, that will be a, a different answer. But, uh, right now my only published game is through uh, smirk and laughter or Koi, which was one of the uh, three launch titles of smirk and laughter, which is the imprint of the amazing and awesome company smirk and dagger games. Yeah. Awesome. And it's, it's a programmable action game. And, and so, uh, before we get into that one though, before we get into any of this, what are we talking about? Give me a good working definition of what programmable actions, uh, what that even means. Okay. So, um, I mean, it, you can actually have a lot of different takes on it, but at its heart, uh, programmable action games, uh, players will have, um, a set of options often in the form of a hand of cards, uh, where they can select them and they can, uh, lock them in often, one, two, or three cards. And on these cards, they'll be telling um, their piece, their meeple, their pawn, to do different things like move forward, jump, turn. And you, you'll basically use these cards to pre-plan uh, your, your piece's moves. Um, often in these games, other players are doing the same thing simultaneously and secretly. And then once everyone has their cards locked, um, they're revealed one at a time often. And what'll happen is, what you planned your piece to happen will happen at the same time. Other pieces, I mean, other players are doing the same thing to their pieces. Uh, so you end up having this um, often uh, controlled chaos on the board where a lot of things are moving at once, maybe bumping into each other um, in the most pure sense of it. But then other games will do different twists on it um, where um, like Flamme Rouge, uh, instead of really bumping into each other, you're basically jockeying for position um, in a two-lane race towards the end of the game. Uh, so that that's at its heart is um, what it is. 
Yeah, and like I said earlier, there's so many of just the best games in the world. I mean, if you look at the top 100, top 200 on BGG, tons of those games in that in that list have programmable action, whether it's programmable movement or programmable like the the way the abilities trigger and that kind of thing. And so this is a super interesting uh, topic. And so let's just kind of dive right into some of these examples. What would you say are some of just the the main like the best examples of programmable actions? And then let's kind of talk about what makes them so great. Okay. So um, I'll start off with the big daddy of them all um, by uh, a guy named Richard Garfield. Um, so some, some people may have heard of him. Uh, yeah, Robo, okay. yeah, Robo Rally. Um, uh, so Robo Rally is the quintessential game people reference when they talk about programmable moving. Um, if anybody hasn't heard of this game, you're essentially controlling a little robot. Uh, and you're trying to get your little robot to move through a grid to land on um, a series of gates, usually four. And whoever gets to the fourth gate first wins. So it sounds simple enough. Uh, and you'll have a, everyone starts off with the same um, hand of cards. Um, you'll draw up nine cards and you're going to play five of them face down in order. Uh, and they'll have things like move forward one, two or three spaces, turn left, turn right, reverse one. Um, so everyone will kind of secretly select how they want their robot to move. And they'll put these cards face down. Then everyone will reveal their first card, and everyone does what they thought they were going to do. So move forward, turn left, reverse. That usually works. And then by the second card, you're going to do that again. You're going to move forward, or um, now you're going to turn in another direction, or um, maybe uh, make a U-turn. That usually works. And by the third card, something interesting happens. Other robots have also been following their programs and moving around the board. So... Where you thought you could simply go forward, well, now there's another robot in the way. So instead of simply going forward, you might push that robot. Now, if that robot goes after you, where that robot thought he was going to go forward um, onto one of these uh, um, checkpoints, instead of going forward into a checkpoint, they might go forward into a wall or into a pit or uh, damage um, through a laser. Some other thing happens. So in Robo Rally, what makes the game super um, fun is the fact that it has the illusion of control, um, where you think you're making all these wonderful plans, but the game quickly um, goes into its chaotic uh, dance of you hope you can do what you think you want to do. Um, so you get a lot of interesting scenarios where people think they're going to win, they end up in pits. Um, people think they're going to push someone into the pits, and they end up driving themselves into lasers. And it's just it's it's lighthearted and it's a lot of fun. Um, uh, but it also could be very polarizing. Um, I've played Rogue Rally a lot of times. It seats a lot of people. We usually have big game nights in my house, and the fact that Rogue Rally can play a lot of people. Um, we often have six uh, or more players in the game. Um, it's it's often hitting the table, but I've actually, uh, uh, full disclosure, never finished a single game of Rogue Rally without at least one person either uh, uh, quitting or getting near close to quitting. Um, the challenge is because since people lose control over their turns, when you're getting towards the end of the game, sometimes they get a little frustrated that they thought they won and was like yanked out from them. Um, so Robo Rally, um, since people don't have full control over their turns sometimes, um, can be polarizing. It has its audience that love it, like me, um, but there are also people that don't necessarily like it. And that's where program movement, I think, has gotten um, its really big raving fans, and it's also gotten the people that just don't like it. Um, but like I said, that's the kind of the example everyone goes to. If you look at games nowadays, there are really amazing games that are coming out that use this um, uh, mechanism. 
uh, innovatively and uh, in just in really different ways. Um, games like uh, Dead Man's The Blooms from uh, Geek Fever Games, designed by Jason Maselli, a really cool pirate game uh, that plays in two arcs, where your first arc, you're basically, um, your, your captain is on a deserted island looking for pirate treasure while your pirate ship circles the island, pillaging and attacking other ships. And then uh, the second arc is you find this treasure, and then you have an all-out high-stakes sea battle where you're trying to sink other ships. And if you do, uh, their actual peace changes to a translucent ghost ship, and they're trying to, uh, the ghost ships then can still attack and try and get respect back and um, stay, take the wins from other people. And it's very interesting. Now, how that game uses um, program or action program and program movement is like Robo Rally, you're going to select a number of cards. In this game, it's three uh, face down while everyone does that. And simultaneously, people will reveal them. Um, and then they'll go off in turn order first player, second player, third player. Um, all the cards will have a movement on top, which you have to follow. Um, you know, similar to Robo Rally. But where it's different is that every card will then have two options uh, an a action and a b action and you choose what to do so they can be things like repair your ship attack another ship um try and board another ship uh pillage a village for balloons um so what happens is even if you didn't end up moving um into the right position or your your movement didn't go the way you planned you can still salvage that card and have some meaningful choice on your turn because now you have a series of options they were locked in but you do at least have two options per card which i think definitely is a nice twist on um the predetermined fate that usually happens with the programmed uh, action games um and yeah, then, and like uh, you were saying earlier, you know, a lot of people get so frustrated with this kind of stuff that, that well, that gives them a little extra control. So to kind of keep the, the tension down, maybe a little bit more than Robo Rally does towards the end game, right? Right. And then there's other games. Um, one of the things where it really shines is it can, um, depending on how it's used, it can also speed up games. Um, uh, in this case, I'll, I'll reference Flamme Rouge. Uh, I'll be honest, it is my favorite racing game. I think it's one of the best racing games on the market. Because um, it's one of the only racing games that actually feels fast. Um, I've played yeah. games of Flamme Rouge where my heart's literally pounding at the very end when you're flipping over the last few cards. Because you're like, am I going to win? And you're, it really feels like a race. And the way they've done that is uh, they've simplified the mechanic a little bit. Um, you have two, uh, two cyclists on a track. Uh, and it's a variable track. Um, there's two lanes. And you have a sprinter and a roller. Um, Everyone has a sprinter. Everyone has a roller, so two cyclists. Uh, they will have um, an identical set of cards for each of them. And players will draw a hand of cards for their sprinter, and they'll have movement on them, just simple movement. Two spaces, four spaces, nine spaces. And you will select how many spaces you want your cyclist to move forward, and then you place that card face down and lock it in. Um, the roller, you'll do the same thing. You'll draw a couple cards for your roller, determine oh, i want him maybe to move five spaces forward you put that face down and lock it in everyone does this at the exact same time and then everyone reveals their cards um and it's a really quick um selection system because what whoever's cyclist is in first place moves first and then you just move all the way from first to last in the pack the number of spaces so it's a quick mathematical movement um takes only moments and then the goal of the game is to pass the finish line first. And if you're lucky enough and planned your move properly, you maybe not ended in first until the very end of the race. 
but you're just behind another racer. And if you're able to do that successfully, um, you get this drafting where they basically thematically um, taken the wind force uh, away from uh, you and you can go forward for one space for free. Um, however, if you are that person in first place up until when the game ends, the person in first place is getting the brunt of the wind and then they will get um, movement icons that are only worth uh, or movement cards that are worth two movement, which is a smallest movement in the game. So they're basically getting deck load. Uh, so it ends up being a really cool, really fast game of trying to literally be in second place the entire game until the very last lap or, or sorry, last uh, last few um, uh, sections of track when you hopefully can take the win. Uh, and that, like I said, that, that is successful because it is simultaneous action selection. It goes super fast. Yeah, and I feel like what all these games have in common is players are, it's, it's a psychological game. It's just as much a meta game as it is anything else of you thinking through, okay, what is Steve going to play on his turn? And what is Susan going to play on her turn? And so what does that mean for me to play on my turn? And you're like playing these mind games with people and, exactly. and maybe you're you know, doing a little trash talk. You got a little thing, you know, some things going on at the table where you're saying different things and, and trying to figure out what they're going to do. That way you can, you know, play the most efficient uh, action possible or the, or the best ability at the right time. And so it's very interesting how these games kind of bring in the meta, you know, that a lot of games, they don't really yeah. do that. It's not as big a deal, but with these, it's, it's like right there in the front, forefront. Oh yeah, no, that that definitely um, uh, it makes the mechanic very very interesting because you are trash talking. You you really want to bluff your opponent to make them think, oh no, he's yeah. going to play a big card. Now I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to counter that, and then you play something completely different. And they maybe blew a really important card on something that you they thought you were going to do that you just smiled because you didn't do it. Um, so it, there, there's a lot of meta enjoyment out of these games. Um, and uh, I mean, even some of the biggest games out there this year are using it. Root, um, yep. the entire uh, uh, Eerie Dynasty, uh, their entire game is uh, action programming, where you're going to choose, hey, I'm going to, I'm going to attack or build or move, and they'll basically go through their entire player tableau, and if they can't execute their uh, predetermined action plan with this programming mechanic then they actually uh, get an, uh, a penalty. So in that game, you actually you are allowed to build a program, the actions that are going to go off every time you take a turn. But if you get too greedy and you think you can do more than you're actually able to achieve, then you're actually even penalized for it. So there's definitely a lot of, um, a lot of games out there, but a lot of games that can take this mechanism and really change how it's being used, which is what I find so interesting. Um, Deck building is deck building, um, but when you cut things like programmed movement or programmed actions, there are so many different ways to go about it. Yeah, for sure. And then there's a game like Mech versus Minions, which takes this programmable action into the cooperative, you know, setting. And so let's talk about that one for a second. Oh yeah, no, I mean that's actually uh, one of the best produced games of last year. I mean, uh, for those that have seen it, it is just. Right out of the box, amazing. Um, I think it's really what put game trays on the mat because uh, even the uh, the uh, vacuum formed inserts for the game are gorgeous. Yeah. Uh, the plastic overlays that hold the pieces in place are gorgeous, uh, and the game itself is really fun. Uh, it's a campaign style game where you're going to play um, essentially ten campaigns, uh, one to four players. And in that game, you're going to have um, a drafting uh, system where uh, you're going to get five cards um, and you're going to 
the first player will have the cards in their hand, and then there's a sand timer that gets turned over. And you, as the first player, will choose one of the cards you want to put on your board. Uh, and then you hand the cards over to the next person, and they're going to choose a card that they're going to put on their board. Uh, and then they pan over to the next person. And the goal is for everyone to be able to have selected one card of their choice in a four-player game. If the timer runs out, however, everyone will get a card, but they become random. Now, what that game does different is... Um, uh, very similar to Root, you're going to be creating a, a tableau in front of you that will activate every single time you take a turn. So you are setting your program that's going to be the same program every turn unless you add to it. Um, but what they do is once you start placing the pieces, there's going to be five um, total slots that you can place your card in. And they could be things like attack because you're fighting minions and ultimately trying to basically kill all the enemy. Um, or it could be move in a certain position, or it could be turn in a, um, a 90 degrees or 180 degrees. So once you have uh, your first tableau set, everyone kind of moves and maybe is a little ineffective because you don't have a lot of uh, actions on your tableau. But what will happen is there's a second draft on another round, and there's a third draft on another round, and then your tableau starts to build. And what's really cool about their um, twist on this mechanism is... If I, let's say, I played a card that lets me turn 90 degrees. It's my choice if I use that card to turn clockwise or counterclockwise. But So I have this card. Well, if I play another card of a similar type on top of that, rather than um, another new card, a new, the new command line, the card that I just um, overlapped, um, so I play it literally on top of the old turn icon, now it's a level 2. And now maybe I can turn... Um, 180 degrees or if i'm attacking maybe instead of attacking with a laser that goes forward now it may go forward and to the sides um so it, it's an interesting uh um, decision point that the game creates when you get a new card do you want to place a card in such a way that you can now take more actions and do more stuff on your turn or would you rather do the stuff that you're currently doing but way better um, way cooler, way more destructive, or way more effective. So it, it definitely creates a lot of interesting uh, decision points within the game. And since it's cooperative, um, it is, does the exact opposite of um, uh, what people experience in Rogue Rally. Where in Rogue Rally, you're just, you just want to like shake your friend because they just ruined your entire turn and you ended up in a pit. <laughs> um, in this one, it's like, no, come on, we, we got to work together because that, 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 that boss is coming because um, there's also hidden within this game um, a big piece that is in a magnetic sealed box with an axe coming through the side of it, and that's this boss piece that also will use an AI version of program movement. So the game itself does program movement as an AI function against you. And um, action programming actually lends itself very, very good, I think, to um, solo modes and AIs. In fact, um, in Koi, which I'm sure we'll talk about very shortly, uh, that actually has a solo mode where um, you're going to be competing against the game and the game follows its set of programmed rules, uh, maybe breaks them a couple uh, couple times, and you literally have to compete against a very, very tough opponent um, and hopefully win. Um, but more often than not, you're probably going to lose so that when you do win, you have that yes moment, like that, that, that sense of accomplishment. And that's because programmed actions really lend itself to that. Yeah, for sure. And now the last one I've gotten on, got on my list is a game called Wallenstein, and it's also Shogun. It's the same game, just with a different theme. Have you played that one? 
That one I have not played. Um, I've seen it around, but I've not actually uh, uh, learned too much about it. Because um, we have a lot of games that come out in our world. Uh, so uh, this one, I, I will give the floor to you, Gabe. Uh, how does this one work? Yeah, I think it came out, I want to say 2006. So we're talking like 12 years ago, I believe, if, that, if, that's, if that's correct. It's been out for a pretty long time. But that one's interesting because you're, you're programming uh, the actions for these different provinces. So think about risk. And like if you, you, know, you, you have the big board and you've got all your, your armies and guys out there. And you get a card for each province that you own. And then you have a player board that has different actions. And so you have all these cards in your hand, and then you also have bluffing cards. And so you're going to place cards down on the different action uh, selection spots on your player board. And then the game kind of determines which actions are going to happen first. And so uh, and they're going to happen for everybody. And so it's kind of interesting. Uh, the first five you know about, and the other five, there's 10 total actions in the game. The first five you know are, like what order they're going to happen in, and the other five, the cards are face down out in the, on the middle of the board. And so you don't know what's going to happen. And so you're trying to guess and trying to like set yourself up for success and you know try to guess what other people are going to do on their turns and which provinces they're going to add armies to, which provinces they're going to move away from, who are they going to attack. And so the cool thing about this one is you plan a good bit before it all happens. You know, a lot of these games, you you play a, f- a few cards and then it happens and you and you do it again. A few cards, you do it again. But this one, you, you're there's like a pretty substantial planning phase where you're really trying to figure out, okay, what am I going to do? And and it, it can ca- cause analysis paralysis, which is not the greatest thing in the world. But the cool thing about the game is once once everybody's determined, all right, these are my cards. This is what I'm going to do. You just kind of sit back and you let the game happen, and you kind of get to watch as these things occur. And you're very interested on everybody's turn because you're 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 not sure what they're going to do, and you're not. Sh- and again, with those five cards that are face down, like you don't know how every action is going to play out and in what order. And so it's just a really interesting uh, game that that is. It almost has like two very interesting uh, things happening, like different. What's the best way to say it? Um, it, it? It almost sounds like it's like um, creating an episode. Uh, like you're, you're literally creating this uh, mini battle um, epic in front of you. So you, you as a director, you kind of have an idea of the plan, but then the actors kind of take it away on their own for you. Yeah, for sure. And you feel like you really do feel like the general that's kind of removed from the battlefield. Like you were back way off in the palace somewhere with all these plans. You're saying, okay, we're going to do this, 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 and this. And then you just get to kind of see how it all plays out. And then they report back to you what happens. And you go, okay, well, now we're going to do this, 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 and this. And so it's, it's, it's very thematic in the way it works. Cause you're not like right there on the front lines fighting every battle. You're, you're way off in the, in the back of the line, so to speak, and, and planning all this stuff ahead of time and hoping for the best and, and then trying to make, uh, decisions based on what happens. And so it's really interesting the way you kind of program your entire army, you know, uh, what resources you're going to get, the turn order, you you plan the whole thing and then just let it un- unfold. That sounds really cool. I'm actually going to have to now check that out the rest of the way because uh, the meta with that is just really intense because um, you are really going to be planning out a lot of things happening on the board and then just letting them yep. unfurl. Like the general going, okay, you go here, you go here. I want you to attack that guy and take that area. Mm-hmm. Please do it. I hope you do it. <laughs> and seeing if you were <laughs> successful or not. So um, I, I like that. That sounds really cool. Yeah. And another cool thing is, so let's say if I attack you in a certain province and I win, I now take that province card from you. And if it was on your player board as an action that hadn't triggered yet, you don't get to take that action when that happens. And so you can you can really mess people up depending on which actions happen when, right? And so it's, it's very it's very tactical and strategic kind of the way the whole game plays out. It's probably more strategy than tactics, but yeah, it's, it's just super interesting. 
I like that. I'm I'm definitely gonna check that out. Hopefully over the holiday I'll get a get a chance to. Yeah. All right, but let's move into your your neck of the woods. Let's talk about Koi. All right. So tell me about the game and then let's get into the the heart of you know how the programmable actions work in, in it. All right, so um I'll give you the elevator spiel uh first so everyone kinda knows what we're talking about. Uh so Koi uh just actually came out in November from Smirk and Laughter is like I said, one of the first three titles of um uh, the Smirk and Laughter line from Smirk and Dagger. Um, so in Koi, you're playing a Koi fish. Uh, and the goal of the game is to get your fish to land on or move through um, uh, hexes, because you're playing in a, in a pond uh, made of hexes, that uh, contain either dragonflies worth three points or frogs worth one point. And uh, your fish is going to kind of meander to and fro somewhat inefficiently through this environment, eating up all these points uh, over the course of seven rounds, or in the game we call them days. Um, and then whoever has the most points at the end of seven days wins, whoever had the best meal. Um, and then to throw a little bit of replayability and randomness into the game, um, every new day after the first day that you play, there's a weather card. And... You, on the weather card, when you reveal them, they're going to change how certain rules of the game work slightly or make certain things more powerful or restrict other actions. Uh, things like in, when you place a token, place two instead of one, maybe, as an example, or move extra spaces. Um, so there are 20 of these weather cards uh, within the game, and you're only playing with six per game. So you can actually play three games without even seeing the same card come up. So there's a lot of replayability yeah. with that. Um, mechanism in it and the whole game is actually is um based on programmed movement but in a very different way than other games have used it um so you're gonna have a hand of cards in koi um it's a set number of cards based on your starting position um so uh, the first player will in a four player game will have four cards um second player will have four cards uh, third player will have five, and the fourth player will have six cards. Because uh, there's a little bit of a first player advantage, and that's how I overcome it. Um, so once you have these cards, uh, on your turn, you can play as many of them as you like. Um, but on following turns, you're only going to get three cards. So you literally will have a limited number of cards you will get through the game. Um, but when you are playing these cards, unlike other games where there's action programming, um, you're not playing cards simultaneously uh, with everyone else and revealing them with everyone else. Because when I was trying to come with this game, I wanted to do a couple different things with it. Because when at Gen Con, 625 games came out, brand new to this world, you need to do things different to stand out. Um, right. And um, I was looking at programmed actions. And again, I love the mechanism. It's a lot of fun. But I've seen people absolutely hate it because they feel like they don't have meaningful choice. Uh, they don't feel like they have um, control over their um, piece's actions. So I was like, well, how can I change that with action programming? And this is how I did it. So the cards in your hand are going to be of two types. They are movement cards, which will have... Um, up to four different movement actions, things like forward, uh, turn one hex facing clockwise or one hex facing counterclockwise or jump or face any direction. Um, and that comprises two-thirds of the deck of the game. Two-thirds of the game is these movement cards. Uh, and the other third of the uh, game's cards are these natural beauty cards, um, which are things like uh, 
stones and lily pads and watercolor cherry blossoms. Because uh, in addition to doing this program uh, action mechanic that I'm um, going to go over, I also wanted the game to ultimately be uh, an art piece so that at the end of the game it actually looked like a piece of artwork on the board. Uh, so um, basically you're going to be playing these natural beauty cards uh, which will add tokens to the board which will uh, basically not only help your piece but um, it can also, because they're all dual use, uh, frustrate your opponent a little bit like uh, uh, the cherry blossom. Uh, you can place in a way where it may move uh, a dragonfly closer to you to so help you score points, or you can place it in a way where it will move your opponent's piece away from uh, a score um, and move them maybe in front of a rock or something challenging. So, um, on your turn though, you're going to be able to play these cards, these attribute cards, or these movement cards. And when you play a card, no one else is going, it's just you. You now have to follow that card. So, on the movement cards, especially, you're going to see a little fish at the bottom of the card. You read the cards from the bottom of the card to the top, so you read bottom up. So you almost picture your fish swimming up the card through these motions. And uh, let's say I played a card that was forward, 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 uh, turn one hex facing counterclockwise. I now have to do all of those motions on my card. Now I can play another card that maybe is turn one facing um, clockwise, turn a second facing clockwise, move forward one, and then jump. And so I'm going to be playing as many of these cards as I want on my turn until I decide to stop. And they're going to cause my fish to move around, hopefully scoring some points, if not comboing, which it tends to be uh, some of the better points of the game. If you can eat like two or three or four uh, dragonflies on a turn, you get this nice, really high-scoring combo. Um, but you're basically playing these cards in such a way that you're hoping you end up in a good position. But you will get choices in the game, such as since... You have to follow all the arrows. Maybe you only need to move forward one space to eat a dragonfly. But the card you have is going to make you move forward four. So do you play that card now and score the points and then end up nowhere near where you want to end up? Or do you hold on to that card um, for use in a later round and hope you draw a new card that may be able to let you move forward one and then turn? Uh, so at its heart, you're basically going to be meandering through this pond like koi do, like fish do. Fish kind of just bobble around a pond all day. They don't move very efficiently. Um, they don't even go towards your bobber if you're fishing in a lake. Um, they just kind of go left, right as they please, and that's what these cards are doing. So um, the game is literally designed to make you be able to move not exactly where you want to go, but at least you will have, because of the way you play the cards, full control over ending up where you're going to end up. So that's how I do it. Yeah, very cool. And I love how it's it's thematic because I feel like there's some games that have programmable actions and it's like, well, why? why? Like, this doesn't make sense. You know, with robots, it makes sense that you would program and the robot would do what you program to do. With fish, it makes sense because they have fish brains and they just do odd things sometimes. And so I, I like how it's uh, it's thematic. But let's get into design challenges. What were some of the, the issues you ran into when trying to design this game? And let's, let's talk about maybe some things you had to cut out or, or change. Okay, yeah, so this game um, it went through a lot of changes in the uh, when we first uh, created it. Um, what I learned, and this, this was a, a surprise to me, um, but trying to get people to understand orientation and spatial movement, especially in a uh, hexagon-style uh, grid, is one of the most challenging and difficult things to design for um hmm. personally i'm i'm pretty good with spatial awareness um 
I can picture movements and you know a couple steps ahead and how things will move through an environment. Um, uh, just like uh, when, when my wife and I talk about how we're going to mod modify a house, like oh, I can picture that new couch over there where my wife she wants to see the picture of the couch like in the area. She can't project that as easily. Um, so uh, I didn't know that other people struggled so much with this. It, 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 I was oblivious. Um, but then as I started playtesting it, I found this out because the first cards I made, they weren't these simple forward, left turn, right turn arrows. Um, I actually styled the cards um, more similar to a game uh, Onitama, where it's a 5x5 grid and it's more of a chess-like game where you're going to move pieces around this grid um, to try and capture um, your opponent's sensei or land on their sensei starting square. But what you see in Onitama is a, you'll see a picture of the board and highlighted squares where your piece will end up. It doesn't necessarily move up to that point. It just goes, if you play this card, you can end here, here, or here. And there's a couple of choices on the card. So I tried to originally use that. And people that played the game always said the game was really, really good. But I was watching how long they were taking on their turns. And I was watching how people that weren't currently taking their turn were kind of losing interest. And... I was trying to figure out why, and then it occurred to me, like, wow, they're trying to see how they're going to move through this board, and they're struggling. Um, and it wasn't like one or two people. It was it was a fair few. So I was like, oh, my God, i got to change this. This is not going to work. Um, so when I make changes, I tend to make big changes in games um, just to really see uh, what moments or things people are gravitating towards uh, or uh, away from. And so I went, okay, rather than just tweak this movement where the cards originally with these hexagon um, uh, patterns like in Onitama, I mean, the cards were like really pretty. There were like little S patterns or little yin-yang um, patterns where these fish would swim through these things. And it looked nice, like, nope, screw it, that's gone. I just, I, I got rid of it. And I went to the, uh, the simplified arrow movement and it was like a watershed moment. The first game I played with these arrows it cut the playtime down by 30 minutes. Um, so it went from this game was like feeling long at 90 minutes for a four-player game um, uh, to now like the first game we were playing. You know, this were things were still clunky. Um, it took 60 minutes. Then we were able to do a couple more tweaks, and now a four-player game will end around 45 minutes, um, which is nice. So it was really like an aha moment. Like, okay, I I can't make these complex shapes because the majority of people are not going to enjoy it. But if I simplify that motion down, but still keep the heart of what I was going for, people really, really enjoy it. Um, and then also uh, what I did is since uh, you do have a fish on the card, um, to help them with that uh, visualization, I literally tell people uh, when I'm teaching the game, put the card next to your fish on the board. This way, you know, if you're, if you're facing upside down, place the card upside down so you can literally move your fish just like the arrows are on the card, and it, it, that also helps people with the, um, the visualization of the card. Um, so that was the first one. Uh, that was the big one. Now, the second one, um, similar to these arrows, so the arrows solved one problem. Um, they, they, they made the game, I think, uh, I would use the term accessible to a, a wide audience. But now, uh, where it got interesting is, now that you have these arrows on the card, I realized there's another thing people do. They about half the people when they look at a card with arrows on it, they read top down. Like myself, I read 
top down, um, like you'd read in the book. The other half of uh, our, our our awesome gaming community reads bottom up, like um, if they're you know seeing a, a, a turn sign while they're driving. Uh, so when I was actually showing this game to Kurt um, uh, when we were at the original pitch session, Kurt read it bottom up and I read it top down and we realized like, at, after playing a round or two that we we're actually playing two different games <laughs> and um, so he and I basically came up with this unofficial bet it's like, it's like no Kurt, it should be top down he goes Bill I'm a publisher trust me it should be bottom up I go well let's let the play testing decide and uh, we did uh, you know a lot of play testing on the game and it actually came out 55% of the players read bottom up, 45 read top down. So I'm like, Kurt, statistically, you have officially won. He goes, I knew it. Yeah. I was like, dang. Um, but it, so it's actually funny. When I play my own game, I have to, even though there's iconic, iconography for it, I have to almost repeat in my head, okay, read bottom up, just because that's how my mind thinks. So it, that was an interesting design challenge. Um, and, and a learning for me about how people see different cards and how they read different cards that may seem clear to me as a designer, but um, them as a player, you're, you're designing games for an audience, not for yourself, and you have to make sure that your design is going to be enjoyed and understood by your audience more than yourself. So that was, a, that was definitely a really cool and helpful learning experience for that. Yeah, for sure. Now let's talk about playtesting. You know, and obviously with your own game, you you have some ideas and, and what you saw through that, uh, the different rounds of playtesting. But let's also think just in general with programmable games overall. Like, what are what are the challenges in design in, in playtesting these things? Like, what are you what are you looking for? What are you trying to to weed out? What are you trying to make more streamlined? You know, so the the experience overall is better for gamers. So, especially in my game, since I'm doing this unique take on action programming where you're taking your entire turn, you have full player agency, you have full control over your turn. Um, no one else is going at the same time as you, they're not putting you in a place you didn't want to be during your turn, maybe after they might be moving you around. Um, but during your turn, you have full control. That means the other players aren't doing anything except waiting for their turns. So for me, the biggest thing that I had to design into this game was a good, fast flow. Um, I wanted yeah. to make sure that the game didn't feel too long. Um, there wasn't too much analysis paralysis. So um, in playtesting, uh, like I mentioned, right now the movement cards, they have up to four arrows. In the very early designs, they had more. But when I found you to the five or six arrows on the card, it became, uh, even for me, a, a a little more thinking, okay, if I play this card, I end up, and then I look at the board for a couple seconds, I'm going to end up there. And, okay, I, I can play this card, now i got to think, okay, I'm going to end up there. But if I play them in the other order, and it just was a lot of thought. So I, when I was playing with um, various people um, and also getting feedback from the blind tests, people were, were basically showing that there's a lot of downtime between turns. Because one of the most important things, I think, when you're designing a game is I will have people, whether I'm running the test or doing a blind test, record when they start, when they stop, and how many rounds a game goes. So then I can quickly and easily plug it into Excel and go, okay, this is the average player um, player turn. Um, and that data was valuable in going, wow, I, I, I need to make the choices faster. So then I, I broke it down and I went to four arrows. Then 
um, the turns started to go faster, but they're still going long. Um, so I found that originally I didn't have a hand size limit, and about the first half of the game, um, people's turns were going really, really fast. And then in the back half of the game, the turns would start slowing down. Um, I'm like, okay, what's causing that? And I'm looking, and people, uh, since every round you're getting three cards, the trick to winning the game is actually not playing a lot of cards in the first half of the game, because in the first half of the game, there's only, um, in a four-player game, five uh, points on the board where dragonflies will spawn every every day, every round. Um, but by the end of the game, players are able to play more. That uh, It's a lily pad that does it, more lily pads onto the uh, board, so that there's going to be more dragonflies spawning, more point opportunities in the last round or two. So people were trying to hold all these cards for this big, huge score at the end. But once people's hands started getting over eight cards, their turns would just stop. Um, like one, one, one person in the beginning, I think 12 cards, it was at a, a, a Metatopia um, in Morristown, New Jersey. And they actually went, oh, hold, hold on, I, I need a minute. They took their hands, they actually put their entire hand down on the table to try and... <laughs> figure out where everything would move. I'm like, okay, this has got to change. So then I, I realized I had to cut down um, uh, the cards so that no player can end their turn with more than five cards in their hand, which means at the beginning of the next turn, and most they'll have eight. Usually a portion of these are those natural beauty cards, which are simple. You play one cherry blossom, or you maybe add a frog to the board, which can either score you a point because they're worth points, so you can put a frog in front of you. Or you can put the frog in front of your opponent because um, it will eat three points. They, they eat all the dragonflies around them. They basically create a dragonfly dead zone. So you can put the frogs near your opponents that are going to score a lot and remove them. But that's a simple one icon choice on your card. Even though it is dual use, play it to help you or play it to frustrate your opponent. Um, outside of that um, card, you have a limited number of movement cards now. And that definitely helped things out a lot. Um, and then the last uh, learning was because you are drawing cards, um, you are going to get uh, uh, random luck in, in, into the game because of this. Um, so in the very early games, um, basically if you drew really good and just got really lucky, uh, you were going to win the game. Um, and if you drew really poorly, you were going to lose the game. So I figured out that I needed a way to mitigate the luck of the draw with these cards, since there are a finite number you'll get in the game. So I created a discard mechanism where on any time during your turn, and as many times during your turn, uh, you can discard any number of cards, and you can draw that many minus one. So um, like some people are going, oh, I, I don't know, I don't feel like um, I, I got good cards and I, I was restricted. When I implemented this mechanism, if someone has a, uh, a hand of eight cards, which is the max hand size, it's a 60-card deck. You can actually have go through over 30 cards if you keep discarding those cards, eight down to seven, down to six, down to five. So, I mean, it, it's in the extreme example, but you can literally go through half of the cards in the game on one turn. Um, so that definitely helped mitigate uh, any kind of bad luck that people might get from the draw. So th those are the major, uh, major uh, changes to the game.
Yeah, gotcha. Now, how in the world did you design a solo mode for this game? Like a programmable action solo mode? I don't, I don't think it's impossible. You know, I'm a guy that's designed a dexterity game that has a solo mode. And so I'm, I'm fully, <laughs> I'm a full believer in like any game can have a solo mode. But like, what, what was the process there? Okay, so the process was, um, it, it was interesting. So um, I started basically saying, I, I, my board is double-sided because um, I wanted to make sure that at a low player count, uh, um, a one or two player game, you still had good high player interactivity uh, as you would in a game with three or four people. So um, you'll flip the board over to the one or two player side, in which uh, case the pond is two hexagon rings smaller. Um, and then uh, I set the game up like I was going to play two players on the very first time I was trying to envision how this was going to work. Um, and I was going to play my hand of cards, and I was going to, for the uh, game's fish, which we call Ryu, um, for the game's fish, I was just going to flip over cards and have it follow whatever card came up, just follow the movement and see what happened. So I, I did a game of this, and the game's fish actually ran over, like, you know, I think it scored a frog and a dragonfly, which is not a big score. Um, that's four points. Normally, you'll end the game around 30, 35 points. Um, so it didn't do really well. But I noticed, like, okay, well, if it's following the cards, like I would follow the cards, it can get points, but not a lot. But it, it worked. It's doing its thing. Um, so I was like, okay, well, what if I change how these cards work a little bit? So the game essentially takes the general rules of Koi and breaks them. Um, so what that means is when the game's Koi goes, there's a couple different difficulty levels. So you can choose if the game's Koi is going to draw three, four, five cards. Um, so let's say the game's Koi, you decide you want to pick a level where they're drawing four cards. What will happen is normally if a turn icon shows up on a card that I'm playing as a human player, um, I only turn one hexagon facing left or right, whatever the direction is indicated. The game's koi will automatically face the nearest point value. So whether it's a frog or a dragonfly, 1.3 points, it will automatically turn and face them. Uh, and if I have an arrow, I move one forward. Uh, the koi's fish will do that. Or if you're playing in um, expert or difficult, uh, sorry, expert or dragon difficulty, uh, the koi's fish will move forward two spaces for every single forward arrow. So essentially what ends up happening is now this koi fish the game's controlling can move more per movement arrow and move more efficiently because now I might have to play a card that helps make me turn two or three times to face the point I want. The koi fish just have to come across one of these arrows that are randomly drawn from the deck. Um, also the other thing happens is if I get to the edge of the pond and I'm facing the edge, which is basically considered like a stone, so it's a barrier, I have to play cards to turn around. The koi, if it has extra movement, will use that uh, edge of the pond to turn around and, again, face the nearest point value. So the game's uh, koi, I like to joke, it, it is hungrier, faster, and better at doing everything than you are, so you have to be smarter. Um, so you end up having to play a very puzzly game where there's times where you're going to use like the natural beauty cards. Like you might place a frog onto the board in such a way that it's going to lure the game's koi away from its scoring points. And then I, I created rules around how if the game comes over across one of those natural beauty cards, like the lily pad or the cherry blossom, uh, it, it'll handle them in certain ways uh, through a, a placement mechanism. 
but that's generally how I did it. I basically ran through a two-player game with the game just blind drawing, see what happened, and go, hey, there's something here. And then um, uh, tested it a bunch of times and then uh, sent it out to the world. Uh, got a lot of help from a couple other really big solo gamers like uh, Dave Beaver, um, designer of Yeah Diamonds. And uh, he helped out a lot with the difficulty of the game. And uh, just a, a, a couple hundred <laughs> solo plays through, uh, it, it ends up being a really satisfying solo experience. Because, um, uh, again... It can get on the higher difficulty levels so hard because the game is so much better at doing what it does than you are that you when you do win at those higher difficulty levels you have one of those like yeah moments like almost like you beat a person uh, so that's what we did yeah awesome and I feel like with programmable action games I mean the biggest challenge is being efficient right and trying to have the most efficient turns possible efficient actions that you can. And so you just made the solo mode insanely efficient and that just upped the difficulty and that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Well, Bill, man, really appreciate all the, the insight and advice and whatnot. Um, any kind of closing thoughts? Like if somebody's working on a programmable action game right now, or maybe they're listening to this thing and, Hey, I can, I can make one of those. Like, what would you tell those folks? Okay. Um, I will tell folks um, uh, two things. One, uh, if you're thinking of making a programmable action game, absolutely do it. Um, this is why. So Koi, um, if you check out Koi after hearing this or you've seen it, I mean, uh, we, we were blessed with the artist, Christy Freeman Stark. The box that she did and the, the board she did is absolutely stunning and gorgeous. Um, but in addition to the art of the game that does help the game stand out, um, it's using this programmed action movement. There are not a lot of games that do it. There are some high-profile games, but not it is not as widely used a mechanism as a lot of other ones. So we had Koi, um, we tried to get it ready for Gen Con this year. And, it, you know, between production and shipping, we just missed it. Um, so we ended up, though, getting uh, a couple of the preview copies um, air-shipped to Gen Con so that Kurt could have it at the Smirk and Laughter booth. Uh, so, I mean, you know, at Gen Con, you're against everybody with their best foot forward. Um, and Koi... There was like you know a handful of copies uh, being demoed at a board uh, on a, on a table, um, where there wasn't uh, huge events or um, people walking around with hall photos of this game. Out of 625 games being released at Gen Con, Koi got to number 25 um, nice. in the uh, hot in the in the Geek Buzz list, and that's with barely any copies at Gen Con. Um, so using programmed um, actions can help you stand out and like i said um earlier on it is a really customizable mechanism um you got games like robo rally where you're playing five cars and everyone's moving simultaneously um and then you got games like mine which take it in a different direction where you're just using it on your turn um and you have full agency over your turn so it is very customizable and because it is not as widely used, I think it can help you stand out in game design and get your game noticed a little easier. Yeah, awesome. I agree. And I hope to see more games with these kinds of mechanisms down the road. Well, Bill, man, I really, again, appreciate you coming on the show. Appreciate your time. Good luck with uh, Koi, you know, coming out and hitting the, the wider uh, masses now. And Thank good luck you. with all the other games that are under review with those publishers and everything else you got going on right now. All right. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. It was a pleasure, man. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. 
Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?